The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. We just started this podcast. We're eight episodes in. And so I was going back and listening to the ones we've done so far just to hear how they sound. And uh, don't don't ever do that if you can avoid it. It's such an awful experience listening to your own voice recorded. Um, but one thing that I noticed as I listened to them one after another is that I use the word wild a lot wild stories, wild interpretations. That's a wild thing to say. Or or weird, that's another word that, that comes up a lot. This is a weird moment. There's weird imagery here. Things are getting a little weird in the story. So weird and wild. There's a lot of weird, wild stuff in here. And that is one of the things I love about this tradition. As you sift through the classical commentaries, it's a little like, like being an explorer. You never know what you're going to come across buried in this vast corpus of scribblings, centuries of ruminations on this book from scholars all over the world. And it's all tethered to the Torah, but the conversation is so sprawling, so unregulated, and all of it predicated on the notion that this text is latent with infinite possibility. So it seems like there's always there's always a surprise just around the corner, buried in the next verse. But every once in a while, I come across something so far out, so mind-blowingly unexpected that it, it it would just be enough if I just quoted it and and just let your let your head explode. Okay, and th- and this is one of those this is one of those times. This is one of those weeks. Um, but don't worry, I'm not going to let your head explode. I'm going to, I'm not going to just spring it on you. Um, we're going to ease into it slowly so that by the time we get there, you'll be prepared or s- sort of prepared. You you can't really be prepared for this. Oh, and speaking of being prepared, I should say, as, as they sometimes do on This American Life, that if you have little kids listening, you might want to save this podcast for later. Okay, so let's let's back way way up. We are we are now in uh, Parshat Vayeshev, which begins the story of Yosef of Joseph, the the longest running continuous narrative in the book of Genesis. It's an epic tale and it's a great story, which starts with him being sold by his brothers into slavery and ends with him having risen to the second in command in all of Egypt. So uh, Joseph is not one of the three, the big three the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's a pretty big deal in, in Genesis. And traditionally, Joseph has a famous epithet, Yosef HaTzadik, or Joseph the Righteous. This word for righteous, Tzadik, it becomes an important one in Judaism. We, we use it to describe a person who is particularly saintly or heroic, particularly righteous, in other words. 
So why is why is Joseph the paradigm for that? Why is he the original tzaddik, the original righteous person? I mean, wasn't Abraham righteous also? Well, the reason that is most often given is taken from a very particular moment in his story. Um, this is how the Zohar, the, the classical mystical commentary on the Torah, we've looked at it before. This is how the Zohar puts it. Rabbi Shimon said, prior to the occurrence of that test to Joseph, he was not called a tzaddik because he kept from damaging the covenant of the foundation, Yisod, he was called a tzaddik. Wait, so what? What, what test? What covenant? What, what foundation? Okay, there's Kabbalistic language in here, but basically this is what Rabbi Shimon is talking about. When Joseph is sold into slavery, he's eventually brought to Potiphar, an Egyptian nobleman, and put in charge of Potiphar's house. Joseph basically becomes like the head butler. And he's good at his job, and his master likes him. And yes, he's enslaved, but things are going relatively well. But then things get complicated when Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph, because, as we're told, he's pretty hot. It says in the Torah, now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Yafet toar v'yafemare. After a while, his master's wife cast her eyes upon him and said, lie with me. But he refused. He said to her, my master put all he owns in my hands, withholds nothing from me, nothing except yourself, since you are his wife. How then could I do this most wicked thing and sin before God? And as much as she coaxed Joseph day after day, says the Torah, he did not yield. Okay, so that's the test that the Zohar is referring to. A married woman tries to seduce him, and it seems like he is attracted to her because the reason that he gives for refusing are, are not ones of duty, not disinterest, but he does say no, no to betraying his master and no to sinning against God. So it seems like he passes the test with flying colors. But then things get more complicated. One day, the Torah says, he came into the house to do his work. No one else was home, so she grabbed him by the clothes and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and slipped out and fled outside. Okay, yikes. It was one thing when she was just tempting him with words, but now she actually tries to grab him and force herself on him. And yet still, he, he doesn't give in. And he makes it out of the house, a bit nakeder, but otherwise untarnished. Second part of the test, again, Joseph aces it. But then she goes and turns the story around and accuses him of trying to force himself on her, and he is jailed for it, which only makes his refusal uh, all the more dramatic because now he really has to sacrifice for it. But anyway, the bottom line is that this is the test. This seems to be the mark of his righteousness, the fact that he is able to withstand sexual temptation. Now, there are lots of questions that you could ask about this particular definition of righteousness. Like, is, is this really the hallmark of righteousness? Aren't there other even more impressive acts of righteousness that have nothing to do with being chaste? Like how about saving someone's life or something? But let's leave those kinds of questions aside for now and just consider the nature of Joseph's achievement itself. Because so far it seems not, not only did he not commit adultery, he didn't even think twice about it. 
It was 100% obvious to him that there was no way on earth he would ever do this, and he didn't even consider it, and that is why he's so righteous. Because he's so pure, so committed to doing what's right, it's, it's not even a temptation for him. Right? Is that right? Well, not so fast, because that is not necessarily the way our commentators read it. Now, the first inkling that I had that maybe they were seeing something more complicated going on here uh, was in the, the grandfather of all commentators, the great Rashi. Um, and on verse 11, at the beginning of our story, when it says that one day Joseph came in to do his work, Rashi says the following. One opinion was that to do his work means that he was just doing regular housework. But another opinion was that he came in to, quote, take care of his needs with her. Wow. Now, this is a pretty radical reinterpretation of what we've assumed this story was saying so far. Far from being perfectly free of temptation, Joseph, in this second opinion that, that Rashi brings, Joseph had completely caved and decided to go for it, and he was on his way to do the deed. But wait, we, we know he didn't. So if he was so on the brink of sin, what happened? Well, Rashi continues, and, and this is what really got my attention. But then, says Rashi, the image of his father appeared before him. Wow, now that is already pretty wild. I'm mean, not to mention kind of Freudian. He's about to have illicit sex, and just as he goes to do it, he sees a haunting image of his father's face, and this stops him dead in his tracks. I'm telling you, these commentators, they are no prudes. They are not, they're not afraid to talk about the deep, dark, twisted stuff that goes on in the human mind. So this is pretty far out already, right? Oh, but did you think that that was the wild and crazy thing I, I promised I was going to share with you at the beginning? Nope. Not even close. Because then I noticed that Rashi ends his comment with a citation, as it says in the Talmud, Tractate Sota. Okay, and that's not unusual. Most of Rashi's comments are taken from earlier rabbinic sources, but he doesn't always say explicitly, hey, that's where I got it from. Sort of seems like he's saying, go, go check it out. So I thought to myself, well, first time I read it, yeah, that was pretty astounding. I, I, I should go look it up. See, see how it looks in the original. And what I came across there was pretty, pretty crazy. Are you, are you ready? This is the big doozy, I promised. Okay, here we go. This is from Talmud, the Talmud Tractate Sota, uh, 36b. At that moment, his father's image came and appeared to him through the window and said, Joseph, one day your brothers will have their names inscribed upon the stones of the high priest's robe, and yours will be among theirs. Do you want to have your name erased from theirs and to be called instead an associate of harlots? Immediately, his bow rested from its force, and his arms stretched out, and he dug his hands in the ground so that his semen came out from between his fingernails. 
ציפורני ידיו. וואו! Did you hear that? That last line? Is that crazy or what? I mean, that is one of the wildest, craziest passages in the whole Talmud, as far as I'm concerned. And there are lots of wild and crazy passages in the Talmud, believe me. Now, uh, now here's here's a question. Why why am I sharing this with you? Why why do I feel the need to share this with you? Am I am I just a sensationalist here? Am I just just being gross? Uh, well, I I do admit to uh, an appreciation of the sheer shock value of an image like that, but I do also think that there's an important reason to highlight that sort of rabbinic literary wildness that goes beyond mere sensationalism. Because I think our image of religious text is often very sterile, conservative, and tame. And I think because of that, we may think of these texts as holy, but we also often assume that they're irrelevant to real human experience because real life is messier and more complicated than religion makes it out to be. And so I think it's important to see that our religious texts are not afraid of the messy and the complicated, and that they are relevant precisely because their concern is real human experience. But you, you wait, you may say, what, what is the relevance of a text like that? I mean, that's not real human experience, except maybe in a, in a dream or an acid trip. But it is, of course, a metaphor. And what's important about the metaphor, going all the way back to the question of, what makes Joseph the righteous one, is that it's a metaphor that acknowledges that being righteous is, is really, really hard. Resisting sexual temptation was painfully difficult for Joseph, as it is for lots of people. Resisting all kinds of temptation is hard. Since the days of, of Adam and Eve, that's been one of the fundamental challenges of being human. It's hard. And yet, it is possible, and Joseph does it, so he's righteous, because that's what being righteous is, according to this reading. Not being so pure and holy that nothing tempts you from your straight and narrow path, but being weak, lustful, and all too human, and doing the right thing anyway. And that means that even though our lives are sometimes painfully hard and full of temptations and challenges and tests of all kind, we too can be righteous. So there's, there's a message in here. But all that being said, I mean, how wild was that story? Oh, wow. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pitrouli by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week. Thank you.